0: Do you remember the film Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise? The premise was that potential perpetrators of crime could be caught before they committed any such act. To do that in reality, agencies would require mammoth amounts of data on persons. Well, they have it, and they are acquiring even more every day, thanks to the blurring of roles between the US military and other investigative bodies. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, there's
1: panic in America. Oh 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 oh.
0: There's trouble in America. Oh 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 oh.
1: From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. The story of First Platoon, while it is set in Afghanistan and tells the story of very young soldiers whose deployment to Afghanistan ends abruptly in catastrophe and tragedy, it also tells the story about the Defense Department's quest to build the most powerful biometric database in the world in order to tag, track and locate people, and here's the rub, before they commit a crime. And that's why I think this story is just as important today as it was in 2012 when the boys went through what they went through.
0: It is a good day when one is in the company of American journalists. Annie Jacobson, as she discusses one of her latest books. In this case, her newly released work entitled First Platoon, A Story of Modern War in the Age of Identity Dominance. You most likely know Annie Jacobson from her prior works on the New York Times bestsellers list, such as 2011's Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base and Jacobson's 2014 release, Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. That work was followed the next year by The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top-secret military research agency. In 2017, and Jacobson released Phenomena, The Secret History of the United States Government's Investigation into Extrasensory Perception and Psychokinesis. Then, in 2019, she released her book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, The Secret History of CIA Paramilitary Armies, Operators, and Assassins. Her new release, First, Platoon, A Story of Modern War in the Age of Identity Dominance, is currently ascending the book charts with the same trajectory and speed of her former works. The first platoon refers to the true account of a unit with the 82nd Airborne Division, which was comprised of mostly 19-year-olds who were deployed to Afghanistan to tag, track, and locate people. The correct term for this gathering of information is biometrics. It is the registering and recording of unique human measurements in the form of fingerprints, iris scans, facial images, the distinction of ears, the shape of one's veins, and of course, the most telling of revelations, one's DNA. So Annie Jacobson, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Watching America.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for that long introduction of all of my books, which you're absolutely right. They do string together um, and sort of weave a a bigger picture, I would hope, of what it's like post-World War II in terms of military and intelligence world programs and secrets, that's sort of how it all threads together.
0: I want to ask you uh, about your your place of origin. You were a Connecticut Yankee, you were born in Middletown, Connecticut. How long did you stay there for?
1: I grew up there as a child, then I went off to boarding school with my typewriter, uh, age 15, and I've been writing ever since.
0: <laughs> So you, uh, you you discover that you want to write and you have uh, a person of influence who says, okay, you can write fiction if you want to, but uh, w- please consider being, if you will, a historical writer with a nonfiction narrative. Was it a, a difficult transition or did it feel like a comfortable shoe from the moment you started?
1: You know, it's so interesting that you bring that up because it was actually sort of a real pinnacle moment for me as a writer. I had spent You know, from age fifteen to thirty-four, writing fiction. I was at Princeton. I wrote with some great writers there, and was always intending to write the great American novel. And I had zero success. And I mean zero. You know, I had never sold a single story. And I found myself age 34 uh, with a young child who's now at Westland. And um, I thought, my God, I just need to give this up. It is not working out for Annie Jacobson in the writing department. And a mentor of mine at the time said to me, stop making things up. Tell the truth. It's the truth that matters. And she suggested that I become a journalist. And it was just the easiest transition because I just want to tell great stories. And I hadn't realized until that moment that, my God, the stories that are true I mean, they are mind-blowing if you really listen to the sources that I've been able to uh, interview.
0: Well, it's very interesting, Annie, because you you were able to uh, kind of circumvent your original ambition because uh, you went around and wound up writing fiction of a sort with Tom Clancy's uh, Jack Ryan TV series for for Amazon Studios, which I presume means obviously now you're a member of of, uh, the Writers Guild.
1: Yes, yeah, so I do actually write fiction now. You're absolutely right. Um, but you know, failure is sometimes a great teacher. And that was certainly the case for me. And I say failure in as much I always tell young writers now, you know, never give up because that 20 years that I spent um practicing the craft, but not being quote unquote successful was all worth it because you're always learning new things. But you know, now here I am uh, able to write fiction and nonfiction, and they entwine in many ways because they inform one another.
0: In my other life, I'm actually a professor of filmmaking and I teach screenwriting. Uh, I, I'm just imagining you now going with, the, you know, the, with the, working with the Final Draft and coming up and learning the format. Was it difficult for you to rethink how you present things visually versus descriptively when you're writing a screenplay?
1: Well, there's so much to learn from other great writers and the joy of being in the writer's room, in this case, uh, writing on Jack Ryan, was that you're surrounded by these excellent craftsmen and, you know, visionary people with big imaginations. And so you just learn as you go. And, you know, figuring out final draft, of course, is is craft. But look at, you know, we've all now figured out how to how to make Zoom work. So, again... (laughs) Necessity is the mother of invention.
0: Yes, yes. All right, well, let's get into the book. Okay, First Platoon. It is it is a story of just that, a platoon, uh, the 82nd Airborne. And here are a series of young men, um, let's say 25 or so, uh, who are now thrust into a world, given a task, which is quite dissimilar from what they probably thought they were going to do. Tell us about that. The...
1: platoon of young soldiers, and yes, a lot of them had just graduated from high school. So we're talking about 18 and 19 year old young men. They arrive in Afghanistan. And as they said to me, they thought they were there to kill Taliban. And instead, they learn that they are deployed to this incredibly violent area, the most violent area at the time in 2012, Zari District. I mean, it's an abomination. There's IEDs everywhere, there's sniper fire, but their job is to go on twice daily presence patrols. And, you know, allegedly to sort of make friends with the villagers to kind of let their presence be known. But as I learned in reporting the story, the effort that was undergirding their missions was this biometric capture missions. And I at first said, what are biometrics? You know, biometrics meaning human measurements. So as you said, in the intro, fingerprints, facial images, iris scans, and DNA. And many of the soldiers had no idea, even when I was interviewing them all these years later, what that program was really about. And so to learn that it was the Defense Department's effort to build the most powerful database in the world, to catalog people, to essentially tag, track and locate people who are not yet criminals, that blew my mind.
0: I'd like to ask about the interviews, uh, Annie. You you said that they weren't aware, really cognizant of of what the mission was about and why they were doing it. As you encountered various persons that you interviewed, once you got the primary material that you wanted from them, did you disclose to them, say, "Uh, I just want to share with you, this is the big picture of what was going on? Or was that uh, already disclosed somewhere in the middle of the interview so you could get their response to it?
1: Well, I have a very transparent relationship with my sources, I must say. It's, okay. it's very give and take, and, and, and that's, just how, that's just how it is. I, I feel like, you know, when I'm interviewing people to begin with on a subject, I can get a very quick sense of who I really want to spend time talking to. And the feeling's probably mutual, meaning a lot of the sources just kind of slip away. And the ones that stick around with me um, tend to really be able to, re, you know, reveal story. And in, and so on the one side of the interview, they, there they are revealing their story. And on the other side of the interviews, there I am piecing together the puzzles of this bigger story. So there's really no like secret keeping, I'm very transparent about what I know and that I'm trying to report the story by learning more information. So the biometrics I shared with many of the young soldiers what I knew in the beginning and as it unfolded, I shared more as people cared about it. But I have to say that most of these guys really did not and do not to this day care about the biometrics. And that's why the story is about this idea of, you know, this sort of crash of the the young soldiers are there really more about identity. They're figuring out who they are through the brotherhood of soldiering. And at the same time, you have the defense department obsessed with identification and they're very sort of mismatched ideas.
0: So essentially, these young men are acting like FBI agents for the Defense Department, uh, which is a a very curious position to be in. Now, you stated that uh, after 9-11, this whole concept of, uh, you know, the identification of bodies at the World Trade Center was really uh, under the auspices of Paul Shanahan. And then he took that application and suggested it to the military uh, and so, as you have said elsewhere, it, it evolved into soldiers acting like cops on the beat. Um, what was the evolution of that? How, how did they come about rationalizing it and pitching it?
1: I mean, you know, you brought up such a great point, And I'm so interested in the origin stories of these programs that become huge because – they just go back to a tiny moment in time where it all began. And in this case, it has to do with Paul Shannon, that FBI special agent who was, you know, gathering fingerprintable body parts in the rubble of the Twin Towers right after the terrorist attacks. And when he learned that special operation forces and CIA paramilitary paramilitary operators were on their way to Afghanistan. This is in, you know, just a few weeks after 9-11. And he thought to himself, as he explained it to me, my God, we've got to get the fingerprints of anyone that is in the vicinity of where the bad guys are. And he presented, you know, the idea to his boss who presented it to his boss, who happened to be the director of the FBI and director Mueller lent The Gulfstream airplane that he had access to, to this small team of special agents, they fly to Pakistan and they begin fingerprinting the men captured leaving the battlefield at Tora Bora. That group would later become known as the Dirty 30. Those are many of the original people that were put in Guantanamo. And there's just so much controversy about them. But separate from all of that.
0: Now, John Ashcroft signed off on this, too, right?
1: Well, that's right. And that's another really interesting point because as I explain, or and and again, as I learned while I was reporting this, was that the FBI's database is its fingerprint database is a hundred years old. And you have these long-serving FBI agents who are schooled in, you know, taking fingerprints. They used to take them with ink, and now they're taking them with electronic capture machines. And their databases are governed by laws enacted by Congress. And so when Paul Shannon hand carries the fingerprints of the guys caught, you know, leaving the battlefield, um, there's like a problem that no one foresaw, which is, wait a minute, we can't put foreign people into this domestic database and how is it gonna work with the laws? And I mean, it's just astounding to think that this is where it all began. And now, essentially 20 years later, you have this, absolute divergent because the FBI's database continues to be governed by laws enacted by Congress
0: the database is in West Virginia right the biometric technology center
1: both now are housed in on US soil in the United States absolutely which brings up a whole other spooky idea about you know who's guarding this information but the defense department as i show in the book really kind of went wild west with their database, meaning the FBI, once they learned from the FBI how to, you know, essentially fingerprint, um, they said, well, thanks so much for the information, but we're gonna do this on our own. And that led to a lot of endemic problems.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Annie Jacobson. She's the author of her latest book, our new book to read and behold, First Platoon, a story of modern war in the age of identity dominance. So you have automated biometric identification uh, as a system, which is called uh, ABIS. When was that term first invoked?
1: You know, in the beginning of of the whole send up of the DOD's creation of their own database. They weren't exactly sure what to do or even how to do it. I mean, they started out with these different systems of having individual military look at, you know, fingerprints in a database, and it just grew and grew and grew. And now we have ABIS. And as I report in the book, there's been many inspector general reports pointing out how flawed this system is and yet it continues to collect millions of fingerprints of facial images of iris scans of foreigners and house them in this database which is now sitting in the basement of the technologies the fbi's technology center in uh, west virginia and what i found so fascinating about that was In trying to learn about ABIS, you know, most of the people, the scientists involved in it from the DOD level, they really put it up on a pedestal and they make it sound like it's this incredible, you know, just colossal state of the art system. And to find out from the director of, the assistant director of the FBI, that it's actually just kind of an old system sitting in the basement, it really gave me the feeling of the sort of you know, part emperor has no clothes, and part wizard of Oz.
0: Hmm. So, when you started to recognize what was what was happening and the broader application, what was the turn tail moment when you thought, you know, holy heck, this is bigger than I ever anticipated?
1: Well, the real sort of oh my god moment for me happened in real time while I was reporting the book. And it had to do with the war crime element of this story. And so...
0: So is that where Clint Lawrence comes in?
1: Yes. So the story was first brought to my attention about this platoon, First Platoon, and that one of the members had been convicted of double murder and was serving 19 years in Leavenworth. And coming off the heels of having written a book about CIA paramilitary operators in the war theater who are not bound by the military's rules of engagement, I was very interested in trying to discern what had happened and how that individual, Clint Lawrence first lieutenant, wound up in prison and if he should be there. And so I was interviewing the, the soldiers from 1st platoon who believed that the lieutenant was there rightfully, that he had committed these war crimes. They were insistent on that. And I was also interviewing Laurence's lawyers who had explained to me that they found biometric evidence, fingerprints, DNA, that identified the men who had been killed who the army claimed were civilians hence the war crime charge, Lowrance's new defense lawyers were saying, we found out the men killed were bomb makers. And that presented this extraordinarily complex conundrum because you're dealing with rules of engagement and you're also dealing with the fact is, what does it mean to kill terrorists in an asymmetric warfare environment? And so without giving away the book, the real plot twist was when I learned all of this biometric, this alleged biometric proof was, in fact, a house of cards that the lo- lawyers for Lawrence knew very well from being biometric experts themselves that no one would question this.
0: So this is that's John Marr at this point, who's, I presume, the lead uh, defense attorney?
1: That's right. And he had such exquisite credentials in the world of military biometrics. He himself worked at what is called the Justice Center in Parwan in Afghanistan as a Department of Justice lawyer who was training Afghan lawyers how to use biometrics to prosecute Taliban bomb makers. I mean, you can't get more, you know. Esoteric information about all this biometrics than John Marr and his team. Mm -hmm. And so I took them at I took them at their word originally But it was only in filing freedom of information act requests myself that I learned to that total shock that The presentation that they made which they delivered to the president of the United States was completely bogus And as I write in the book, the real big takeaway fear of these biometric collection systems is not that the science is flawed. It's not that science lies. It's that humans do.
0: Is there any possibility of a post hoc um, comeuppance for John Maher and his team for deceiving the president?
1: Well, they stand by what they did and the best analogy i can give is kind of the you know the oj scenario in other words they you know the if the glove doesn't fit you must acquit yeah in other words the idea of a defense attorney is that their job is to simply raise a shadow of a doubt and it's very complex and confusing because they're talking about a post-conviction scenario. But in essence, what they did was just simply raise a shadow of a doubt and present bogus information to a president who was willing to accept information without asking any questions of his secretary of defense or his secretary of the army, who could have told him that this was bogus, but so, chose not.
0: Okay, so John mob essentially plays Johnny Cochran in a sense, and um, but there are others who are hearing this presentation. Are, are, are they totally witless about the deception that's going on? I mean, are there aides to the president, uh, joint chiefs of staff, uh, leaders, uh, just totally oblivious to it?
1: Well... I reached out to General Milley, I reached out to Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, um, all of the individuals involved asking for their comment and they all chose not to comment. So we don't know what they were thinking. We don't know if they really even took the time to explore the minutiae of of the details. what i do know is that when i received this freedom of information act that just made absolutely clear that you know mar and his team had had fabricated a story i immediately presented that information to the department of justice office of pardons because historically that is where the Quote unquote justice lies. But I think also another problem with uh, the, you know, President Trump, now the former President Trump, is that he didn't, when he was looking to pardon people, he didn't take the advice of the Office of Pardons, as has been done um, for hundreds of years. He simply made those decisions on his own, from what I understand.
0: Well we have a, another heinous entity um, whose outcome was decidedly different and that's Robert Bales who uh, was essentially responsible for the massacre of 16 civilians and of which nine were children in Candela Um if a similar approach had been made by the likes of a John Mar to say, oh, we have uh, you know uh, DNA samples and we have uh, retina scans or iris scans rather of uh, of of perpetrators who had evil intent. Therefore, it's justified. Do you suppose, in a setting and a situation circumstance like Robert Bales, they would have been able to pull the things, same thing off? I mean, in other words, is this something that under the circumstances could be applied to many people who are being held in question for um, atrocities?
1: Yes, and Mar and the same defense team represent Robert Bales, and they did make a giant effort to get Bales out of prison by through you know a pardoning by President Trump, and that effort failed, and they did use the same uh, set of you know parameters. They claimed that the witnesses in that case were tied to were, were terrorist bomb makers. Um, And so it's another example of the big picture takeaway of the book, which I try to caution people about, which is that these biometric databases that are very quietly growing exponentially, they're also very quietly gaining a foothold in your life, in my life, without any of us even knowing it because these biometric systems born of war have now come home to the United States. And so the fact that they're understood by almost no one presents real future problems with the so-called experts being relied upon to, you know, Tell the judges, the juries, and maybe even the commander-in-chief what the facts are.
0: When you look at the home application, I mean, this is essentially a minority report um, that you are describing to us uh, unfolding on a regular basis. Um, does it give you pause because others hadn't hit upon this notion before you, or are you just saying, okay, well, if, you know, if I'm I'm the singular voice that has drawn attention to this, then, then so be it. Um, is there a chorus of people behind you who are saying foul as well?
1: You know, it's interesting because the people that are most knowledgeable about this area, and sometimes it's called like biometric cyber surveillance, um, lawyers, privacy lawyers, are really carrying the torch in this area because all of this calls into question our Fourth Amendment right, the right to privacy. And what I learned from some of these legal experts, legal scholars, is that these issues are being debated in the courts. But that is happening at a snail's pace. Meanwhile, the biometric collection systems and all this data that's just being sucked up into the you know systems is moving forward at science fiction-like speed. And that is the real issue. And we see that just recently with what happened with the insurrectionists at the Capitol. We see how immediately sort of private citizens took to the internet and began cataloging facial images of criminal suspects and began crowdsourcing, you know, Mm. Began getting help from essentially Facebook friends to try to identify people.
0: We now have two congressmen, at least, and some are saying there's more rumblings of this. Who are advocating a whole new now division of the U.S. government uh, for home terrorism investigation, which again gets to the minority report—the idea of you know one may be presumed guilty before they've even taken an act. Um, so it's quite astonishing how all these different influences are beginning to synthesize.
1: Absolutely. Now. I even though I write about scary, spooky things, I am actually an optimist at heart. So I don't think the scenario has to be, you know, dire and, you know, apocalyptic, because what we're really talking about here in a good way is rule of law and we have seen such civil unrest in the United States in the past six, seven months. And it's made people have very strong opinions about rule of law. I mean, in many ways, I believe that the former president hijacked that phrase in a very dangerous way because I believe that rule of law is an incredibly important component of a Western democracy. And so now we're seeing on balance Wait a minute, or hopefully, we're seeing individual citizens saying, "Wait a minute, what do I really think about rule of law?" You know, I want to have people abiding by rules and laws, and this be, can become a earnest discussion, not some polarized, you know, uh, stone-throwing argument. And I think that you know what happened at the Capitol is allowing people to realize. Okay, we have to balance out the minority report element of all of this. But at the same time, we want to be a nation of rules and laws. That's the social contract.
0: My observation of America is, is that we've reached uh, an impasse because uh, we seem to be at a place where we will honor some laws and we don't honor others. Um, and we pick and choose. I mean, I'll just give it a very superficial thing. Now, let me just go on record. I do not mind if people want to smoke ganja, weed, whatever, okay? But we have, what is it, 10, maybe 12 states now that have legalized marijuana, and yet it's a Schedule One drug by the federal government. So the real issue to me is not whether or not marijuana is legalized or, or for m- recreational use or whatever, and, you know, if you're in Denver, enjoy yourself, what have you. The real issue is... Can we have states that are now defying the federal law of what's considered legal or not legal? So I'm just using this as just one example, but you can look right across the field of America today, where certain laws are being enforced, other laws are being totally ignored on both sides, conservative and liberal, or depending on how they feel on any given moment. Um, And that seems to be my observation, the beginning of the disintegration of unity in in this country. It's not just an issue of party or a propensity to view things one way or the other, it's is total neglect of some laws and then adamant desire to enforce others. I mean, I, I don't know where this is going to take us.
1: Well, I think you're rightly pointing out that what isn't a great idea for any citizen is to have a double standard. You know, you wanna have uniformity in your opinions and ideas. With that said, when there are times of great upheaval, just like we are having now, there's also an opportunity to toss out some of your old ideas and you know examine some of the new ones and maybe that's just a product of me having you know teenagers um, but I feel like I've never seen such an opportunity as now. For people to engage in the bigger picture debate about, you know, what is, what am I, what rights am I willing to give up um, for the greater good of society?
0: Well, there's an irony, um, I think, and I, I, I suspect you may agree with me, although I won't presume that, um, that it, we, we went into Afghanistan and other nations to to liberate, to bring democracy, and yet it doesn't seem as though the Fourth Amendment extended to Afghanistan by the means and techniques that were employed. Um, how do we square that?
1: I mean, you know, that's a seven hour conversation, but and I say that in jest, but not because, you know, one of the one of the programs in Afghanistan that I was astonished to learn about, mainly because I have been. I, kn- I know quite a bit about Afghanistan, and this was very underreported, which was this idea that when you look at the biometric systems, you have to ask yourself, as a journalist, the bigger picture, what, are, what, is, this, what is this supporting? What's the program that it's supporting? And the program it was supporting was called Rule of Law in Afghanistan. And learning about that, I went, wait a minute. We, the Defense Department, the Department of State, the Department of Justice, and a bunch of other U.S. federal organizations took it upon themselves, starting around 2009, years into a war that was already failing, decided, wait a minute, we're going to set up rule of law in Afghanistan, Western style. And what that means is we're going to set up the courts, we're going to set up the law enforcement, and we're going to set up the corrections, the prisons. This was an extraordinary undertaking to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And to what end, as you say? I mean, this idea may have been, you know, noble, but it was impossible because there was no real functioning government. And so what we were left with was cataloging, trying to catalog 80% of Afghanistan's civilian population to what end? And, you know, a lot of people don't like to read about Afghanistan because it's a real um, tragedy on top of a tragedy. But I think that it's important to realize that The only way you're going to learn from your mistakes as a society is by knowing a little bit about it. And where I felt the story of First Platoon was just so simple and almost perfect in its tragedy, because you could see all the problems unfolding, like literally with every step every soldier took down a footpath, into a village that didn't want them
0: there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Annie Jacobson. She's the author of her latest book, our new book to read and behold, First Platoon, a story of modern war in the age of identity dominance. I'm struck by your earlier book, uh, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, which was uh, basically uh, dealing with the issue of uh, the necessity of assassins um, as a means of uh, precluding war, uh, particularly when diplomacy doesn't work. And I saw you interviewed where uh, the interviewer said, you know, how do you deal with this morally? And to your credit, I think almost to uh, an exemplary degree, you are avidly always working at trying to be neutral and not judgmental It's part of your training. And Uh, requirement as a journalist, but I I also think it seems to be innate to your nature. But you did at one point say, you know, when we come to moral issues, we can't always say what's good or bad, right or wrong, but rather um, what is necessary. How do you apply that to your latest book?
1: Mm. What an interesting question. You know, Surprise, Kill, Vanish – had so much to do with me writing First Platoon. Um, I mean, literally and figuratively. So when interviewing paramilitary operators who are not bound by rules of engagement the way the army or anyone in the military is and learning about the violence that they could inflict, was it was both extraordinary to listen to and uh, very character building in the department of being neutral, Um, which I think is important because none of the individuals I interviewed for Surprise, Kill, Vanish were doing anything besides what was asked of them by the president of the United States. And so, I wanted to examine what lengths America is willing to go to maintain first position as a superpower. Well, the role of the infantryman, the 18, 19 year old soldier is like an ocean apart from that. The average age of the paramilitary operator I interviewed was in their 40s. Some of them were in their 50s. One of them was in his 80s. These are men with decades of experience killing people in wars. These are men who essentially raise their hand and say, send me. On the other side of the equation are the combat infantry soldiers like those of 1st Platoon, right out of high school who were going to the army really for the brotherhood of the platoon, as I said earlier. Were they really raising their hand and saying, send me? Sure, but oh my God, what a different capacity because what do you really know about killing when you are just grad, having just graduated from high school? And I wanted to explore that Difference because it's, it, 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 it asks you to look so deeply inside of your own self. Certainly for me, as a woman who's never gone to war, what does that mean? And that curiosity powered both of the narratives for me.
0: You describe in Surprise, Kill, Vanish, and I hasten to add for people just joining us, this is not the latest book by Annie Jacobs and the latest book is First Platoon. But in reference to your former book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, you have this interesting vignette you describe where uh, an operative um, from the Middle East comes to your home and you're there with your husband and your two boys. And uh, the uh, man asks, he says, would you mind if I demonstrate and show them some of my weaponry and of course your sons so Yeah, yes mom, mom please mom dad come on come on and so you acquiesce and you let them set it up and you're able to look through the scope and you can see that across a valley evidently you could see the veins on a leaf as you describe it uh, and then your boys went off to play and they were distracted and then you asked the uh the the man to open yet another container and there was a knife with a, a very dramatic serrated edge to it And he said, sometimes you have to use this to be quiet, and that really set you aback. It was a visceral moment, and you realize the concept of of contact, you know, hand-to-hand battle, uh, presumably knifing somebody in the kidneys or perhaps even lacerating their neck and and what have you. (sighs) You have two sons. If they were to elect to be interested to go into the military— what would your feelings be based on the fact that you've encountered soldier after soldier after soldier, who thought they were doing one gallant thing, uh, one necessary thing for their for their nation for the red, white, and blue, and actually find very often it's an entirely different task? How would you counsel your boys?
1: I mean, as a parent, of course you try to just be the guardrails, you know, and not the um, not tell them what to do, but. I think in part, I wrote First Platoon maybe to answer that question because, you know, and keep in mind, everyone who becomes a paramilitary operator, like the man who I described that you just recounted, they began once as a as a young soldier with no experience. So they have to get where they got to be able to do what they do. Mm. But with First Platoon, one of the first people I interviewed was a private first class named Samuel Wally. And he's kind of the narrative lead of of the soldiers, I think, because I was so intrigued with him. He is missing two limbs. He's missing one arm and one leg. And he's an extraordinary young man. Um, And his sacrifice, his physical sacrifice, was so great. uh, you know, he lost his limbs to an IED attack two days after turning 20 years old. And the ability to process that, what that means, um, I think when a reader can read that, they can make the prop be, be they my son or someone else's son, they can make a decision for themselves um, whether or not being a soldier is the right thing to do for them. And I don't know that the young soldiers of First Platoon thought through what they were signing up for in advance of going to Afghanistan. And I stay in touch with many of them now. And I get the sense that they are, those who survived are much wiser and will have their children doing a lot more reading about war than perhaps they did.
0: I find myself um, looking at persons who are judgmental about people in the military was some disfavor because I think, well, it's easy for you to, to indeed make such judgments, but were it not for some of the activities that our military personnel are involved in, we, you know, it's a trivial statement, but we wouldn't be able to go to Wendy's. Uh, and certainly life in America is far more important than that. But you have people who are just saying, well, you know, people in the military and the cold blooded creatures and what have you. Although there is a lot of doublespeak. Um, in fact, you, you've alluded to it before. For instance, Eisenhower, a president who is um, interestingly quite prominent in your references, uh, used the term Health Alteration Committee, which was basically, you know, taking care of. Foreign leaders, I suppose, and you know, uh, execution action committee for Kennedy and um, preemptive neutralization. We're very uncomfortable with re- using the real terminology about killing people. Um, to what effect do you think that uh, impacts people who who do go in and enlist? I mean, they're not encouraged to think of themselves as potential killers. You know, now you know we went to the to the phase of be all you can be um, in the army and. We don't necessarily spell out the details, you know, uh, although, albeit we have millions of young men playing, uh, you know, video games with um, Call of Duty and things of this nature, which are quite explicit.
1: I mean, this is a big part of the puzzle, which what you just touched upon, starting with. um, I'm going to point back to to an earlier part of our discussion where we were talking about a polarized society, and I think that. One of the reasons I so enjoy writing about the military and intelligence world and the incredibly interesting people that exist in this world is because I don't ever see it as a, you know, Republican Democrat issue. But for whatever reason, this continues to confound me. The military, the veterans, seem to be adopted by the Republican Party and seem to be a little bit cast aside by the Democratic Party, which is certainly not the case, what it was in World War II. And I think that that, that for a much healthier country, that should change because the, the, the politics don't matter. This is at, at its core a, a choice of a job. The job exists for a reason, the job of being a soldier or a spy or a pilot or a scientist or a poet or a broadcaster. These are these are individual jobs that make up a democratic society. And how do these individual roles. You know, interact and 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 inform one another. That is infinitely interesting to me. On your second point about killing, I will say that having interviewed hundreds of individuals in the military at this point, I'm amazed at how soldiers will tell you right away that that is what they are trained in the military to do. And I find it fascinating that that is sort of euphemistically glossed over. I mean, I quote numerous soldiers from first platoon telling me, I thought I was in Afghanistan to kill Taliban. Um, which is the bald truth of it. They were frustrated because they found out they were in Afghanistan acting like cops on a beat. That's not what they signed up for, but they did sign up to kill the enemy. And I think until we as a society can really accept that, talk about that and ask ourselves what that means, you're gonna constantly have this friction Between these young soldiers who go over and sacrifice so much and then come home and feel like all anyone wants to do is say a silly thing to them like, thank you for your service, but not really ask or wonder what it is like to be someone who kills for your country.
0: Annie, you said earlier that you are by nature an optimist, and and, and I think that that is is evident, Um, but you are a very sober optimist. At the same time, I'd like to conclude by asking you as an American, where is your greatest concern at the moment for the future of the United States? And then secondly, where is your greatest hope?
1: Well, being a historian, I have seen and studied, um, you know, the country's upheaval, certainly since World War II. So, I mean, people often say like, my God, aren't you terrified what's happening with biometrics? I would point them to the buildup of nuclear arms and thermonuclear weapons in the 1950s and say, that was a lot scarier time. So I always have this hopefulness that by learning about history, and I think it's interesting to learn about it through narrative storytelling, we get the sense that we are not the first people to be dealing with these issues why because at the end of the day we're all just humans kind of trying to figure it out so the most the the, the frightening part is also the hopeful part the frightening part is you know is the the idea that people think oh my God, it's worse than it's ever been, that's not true. Mm. And the hopeful part is, you know, it's not as, it's been this way before, so carry on, you know, borrow your British, British
0: sort <laughs> of,
1: um, and, but you know, of course, ultimately, I'm gonna make a big plug for reading because, and, and, and that goes back to Eisenhower, it's the informed public that is the best public for a democracy.
0: I am very fortunate, Annie, uh, because I get to walk through a gallery and, and view many Americans, and um, your portrait is one of the most lovely. You're even, keel, balanced, fair, engaging, extremely intelligent, and uh, sympathetic. And that's a great uh, array of talent and ability, And uh, is as it is evidenced in your writing. So thank you very much for being a part of watching America and I wish you and your two boys and your your husband uh, a bright, safe future and for all of us in America. So I say, thank you so much. Uh, she is the author, Annie Jacobson, of First Platoon, a story of modern war in the age of identity dominance. Thank you so very much and take care and God bless. Thank you so
1: much. It was a pleasure and a privilege.
0: You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm Watching America's creator and host. Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.